Hi there, and welcome to the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. My name is Patrick Francie, and I am your host, and I want to begin by saying thank you for listening. On this show, I am having conversations with seemingly ordinary individuals who have achieved some amazing and extraordinary results in both their life and business. My intention is to inspire and help you learn and grow by having my guests share their journey of how they face and overcome their challenges, but also how they celebrate their many wins. And now let's get on with this show and have a conversation with today's guest. My guest today, Richard Newman, is the founder and CEO of Body Talk. In the past 23 years, his team has trained over 120,000 business leaders around the world to improve their communication and their impact. One client gained over $1 billion of new business in just one year using Richard's techniques, winning 100% of their new business pitches. This is powerful work, yet these skills did not come naturally for Richard. As a child, he was shy, an introvert, and as he's discovered more recently, he's autistic. He realized there were something different about him at the very young age of four and has been on a quest ever since to discover the core principles of successful communication. At age 18, he went to live in the foothills of the Himalayas with Tibetan monks who spoke no English at all. And the only way they had to communicate was non-verbally so that they could in fact understand each other still. He then worked as a professional actor before becoming a communications coach and a keynote speaker. And he has won the coveted Circe Grand Prize Award for Best Speechwriter of the Year. Richard's research on nonverbal communication was published in peer-reviewed scientific journal Psychology. His study has proved that you can, in fact, increase your leadership ratings by as much as 45% and win 60% more votes in an election by changing a few elements in your communication style. So for those of you looking to go into politics, this is definitely a must listen. And without any further delays, Let's get this show started. It was an amazing conversation. Hey there, and welcome to The Everyday Millionaire. I am joined by my guest today, Richard Newman. Richard, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to this. I always have to lead with, you know, as much as I work hard to do justice to your bio and your intro. It's never, I think, quite as good as having my guests, you know, answer the question of, Richard, when people meet you and they say, so Richard, what do you do? Uh, what's your answer to that question? Uh, well, when people ask me these days, I guess I say I'm a communication coach. Uh, I do keynote speeches on stage. I'm a writer. I have a training team, and we primarily train leadership teams around the world how to improve their uh, communication. So uh, that's kind of where I am, uh, and it's been a big journey to get here. So uh, my journey towards teaching people communication skills is maybe a little bit unusual, a bit different to the standard approach. So it's been a lifelong quest for me to help people find their voice, to own their voice. And this is because, uh, you know, I, I've really struggled with that myself. I have the first memory of struggling with communication back from when I was about four and a half years old. So back then I was at like a kindergarten and everything seemed to be going well. And then my parents moved house. 
we moved to a new area and then I went to this new classroom, new group uh, at uh, the school, new group of students, and I was trying to connect with them. And it was the first time in my life where I thought, I think there might be something different about me. W what's happening here? Because I was trying to connect with the other children and they were just turning their back on me and giggling and not at all interested almost like I was sort of interacting with them in the wrong way. There was something I was doing that was off and I wasn't quite sure what it was. I started to ask myself this question thinking, is there something wrong with me? Is there something different about me? What's happening here in the communication in my sort of, you know, four and a half year olds uh, version of that. And that was a question that really stayed with me for many years to the point where up until when I was like a teenager, I could see my friends were finding communication much easier than me. They'd have these back and forth banter, friendly conversations, they're building relationships, getting girlfriends. And I was really struggling with communication, like I was a step behind everybody else. And when I was 16, I read my first book on body language, which was Alan P's uh, original book, I think from the 1970s or something like that. And it, it just blew my mind. I suddenly it opened my eyes to, to all the things that I wasn't seeing before. And suddenly I had more confidence in communication. And from there on, over the next sort of five or six years, I read about 200 books in the field of communication and became obsessed with learning more about it. What I didn't realize at the time is that I was very shy as a child. I, I got come to, came to realize over a period of time that I'm highly introverted. Um, but more recently, I worked out that I am autistic, and I just got diagnosed, I think, two years ago. And so up until very recently, I didn't know what the challenge was, but I knew that I wanted to overcome this challenge and figure out how to communicate successfully with the vast majority of the population. And so, uh, you know, age 16, then my, my friends were starting to go off to university and do various different things. My, my parents wanted me to go to university to study business and so on. And I said, just hold off on that. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go and live in India. I'm going to go up to the foothills of the Himalayas where I'm going to live in a little Tibetan monastery teaching English to Tibetan monks who don't speak a single word of English. And when I come back home from that, I'm going to study acting and uh, study professional performance in London. And so my, my parents were amazed. My friends were amazed. My teachers were amazed thinking, you're just, what are you doing? You're throwing away your education to go and do what do you mean? And so I found myself there with these monks where they didn't speak a single word of English. We were sort of cut off from the outside world. There was no Sky TV. There was no internet back then. There was no mobile phones back then. If someone wanted to send me a letter from the UK, from home, it took six weeks for the letter to arrive. And if I replied the same day, it was therefore taking them three months to get a reply. So that's how cut off I was. Just living with people where the only way to communicate was nonverbal. I had to use body language. I had to use tone of voice. And I loved the experience. I did that for six months with them. I got them to the point where they could have a good conversation with me in English and then studied acting for three years in London and studied about how to sit and stand and breathe and move in a way that might have an impact on an audience. And then when I came out of that, it was really my, my hairdresser that launched my business that came to me, you know, came to where I am today with you know, launching, having this communication company where he was interested in what I said. And he said, could you put together the skills of what you did with teaching the monks and learning how to be an actor and reading these books? Maybe you could teach my hairdressers how to communicate. And I said, okay. And I, and I taught them and they really enjoyed the experience. And I kept on teaching them and word of mouth spread and I got a website and here I am 23 years later, uh, running a communication company where we've worked with over a hundred thousand people worldwide. And it's really just this 
passion of scratching my own itch of trying to figure out how can you, you know, have developed the best communication skills to get the results and reactions that you want from people. Well, there's a lot to unpack in that whole story. And uh, thanks for sharing that. Lots of things that I, you know, I want to go back a little bit to, you know, when you're a young man and you're seeing, you know, your peers seemingly be able to communicate, have friends. I mean, you recently learned that, you know, relatively recently learn about being a little autistic or a lot autistic. I don't know if you can measure that. But, you know, the question, I guess, that comes up for me is that now when you reflect on those times, whether you were the four or five year old or the 16 year old, you know, what was the breakdown that you could recognize? Were you umming, awing? Were you not making eye contact? What was the, the that at that starting point, what was the breakdown in communication that you can reflect on and start to say, no, I identify that, you know, the reason they were doing it was because they were, they were more, they, they spoke with their hands. They had better eye contact. They had better stories. They listened better. What was your breakdown? So, uh, so one simple way to look at sort of the way that I've got this different lens on communication, if you like, because all, all autistic people are slightly different, all neurotypical people are slightly different. My lens on things is simply, if you look at something like banter, when, uh, when I look at people having this sort of friendly, playful banter back and forth, what I see and what I hear is people insulting each other and then laughing in the other person's face. And somehow that makes their relationship better and so when I would try it, people would get really offended and not want to speak to me again. And I think, well, I'm, but I'm just doing what you do. I, I insulted you and laughed in your face. Like, what's wrong with that? That's supposed to make our relationship better. And I just didn't get it. And so my path into then breaking that down and making that more successful is that I had to break down, you know, what is it that I'm doing differently? And suddenly I started to realize, oh, hang on a second, there's something in their intention. So uh, the, behind it, there was like this twinkle in their eye. There was this sense of, I'm going to poke you. It's almost like the difference between pushing someone and tickling someone. You know, it could, it could be seen as sort of being similar in some way, but you're not aggressively wrestling them to the ground. You're doing something that's playful that actually enhances the, the mood of the situation. And so I had to come all the way back down to these basic principles of communication of thinking the intention is the key. So what intention are you coming into the communication with and what feeling will the person be left with at the end of that situation, which is where recently I put this all into the word lift, where I, I've been teaching uh, business leaders and people of various different backgrounds that if you can think about communication as your ability to lift others, then suddenly that could be your key to unlock all sorts of situations like conflict resolution and doing a job interview, doing a sales pitch and so on, where you think, okay, my aim is by the end of this communication that I can move this person from a negative or a neutral state to a positive or a more positive state. And I'm going to do that through lifting them through my communication, through things in my body language, my tone of voice, my intention, my storytelling, that get them to some sort of elevated state. And, and that was something that took me a really long time to figure out all of those little pieces of what exactly can you do to create that sensation of lift in the interaction. It's interesting when you first described what you were doing in terms of your interaction where you were seeing these and you tried that, you reminded me of Sheldon on Big Bang Theory because he had that similar <laughs> challenge. Anyways, I digress. Now, as you started to kind of identify or when did you start to identify that you're looking through a different lens, you're seeing it through a different set of filters than normal or 
I guess, well, I'll call it normal for lack of better words, normal individuals. And then as you start to realize that as you grow and you get your training, that lots of people struggle at some level with communication. They're either try too hard or it's not sincere or it comes across as uh, generated. I mean, you, you must see a lot of that. So is that kind of where you base your training on? Like, where do you where do you enter a conversation? So for example, if you're going to enter a conversation with me, I, you know, I'm on my podcast, I, I'm a business owner, I train teams, I train staff, I do some coaching. So when you enter a conversation with me, because I say to you, I say, listen, Richard, you know, how can I improve? What, what would be a step that I would take? What's your assessment? So, so, so if I'm looking at uh, helping someone to improve their communication, uh, then essentially what I start with is uh, starting, as I'm sure many coaches do, thinking what is the end result that we're looking for and what is currently preventing us. So I'll talk to people about their current challenge. That what are you doing right now? What is not working for you? Are there certain uh, people from you know, certain elements within your business or outside your business that you're struggling to connect with? What are your current results? What are you trying in the communication? Uh, and if someone is, you know, struggling, say, for example, with sales pitches or speeches, I might ask to see, uh, could we get some video footage of what you've done in the past? Uh, so I can get a general uh, frame of reference of where the communication style is right now. And I'll also speak to someone about, you know, what, what have you tried in the past? What sort of systems do you think are working for you, not working for you? And, uh, and also what I look at is not just what the results they're getting, but how do they feel? Because sometimes you can get people who are generating great results, but they feel terrible and they, they are dreading the interaction. They're dreading hosting a team meeting or they're dreading speaking at a conference. So that's no good either. So I sort of start from that pain point. I also like to move forward and say, can I just understand if nothing changes for the next six months or the next five years, if nothing changes from this situation, what is that really leading towards? So let's say that somebody was struggling with um, you know, speaking to their team. What, where do they think that's going to lead towards? They might say, well, I'm not going to get promoted. Or even if a promotion is there, I'm not going to go for it because I, I don't want to speak to larger numbers of, numbers of people. Uh, I don't want to be leading people. I'd rather be in the background. I'm going to give those opportunities to others. And that might mean I'm not a good ambassador for my company. No one's going to listen to me. If I try and cascade messages, it's a disaster. Nobody actually does anything. So, so I talk about that point. Then I'll talk to them and say, where are we heading? Like, like, talk to me about where you'd love to be in five years time. What does that look like for you, for the people around you, for your company? What is that overall impact? Starting with you and then going outwards. And the person might say, where I want to be is I want to be in a place where I love, I look forward to speaking to my team. I look forward to speaking on stage. I look forward to pitching to a client because I know that I'm really good at it and I, and I enjoy the process. And I want to see my team feeling inspired and motivated and engaged. And then ultimately, based on that, I want to see my company going to uh, the next level, maybe 10xing where we are right now. Uh, and and doing that because the impact that we're making is we're able to take these products and services and communicate it in a way that people really care about what we're doing. And so once we've sort of pinned that down, I can then come back to, okay, let's look at what you need to do in order to get there. And what I tend to do is start, first of all, with someone's mindset. Because what I found uh, along the years, and look, I, I mean, I run a company called UK Body Talk. And I, I launched this company with the name Body Talk because my first interest was with body language. And I would train people on body language. I'd train them on nonverbal communication and so on. And I got to a point where I thought, 
okay, I can do that. And sometimes I can generate really fantastic results. But there's also, for some people, a resistance where they say, look, I know what you want me to do. I know what I'm supposed to say. I just can't do it. And so I had to come a step back and say, let's just start from the inside. What's happening for you? So let's start off with mindset. And to give you an example of uh, an activity everyone listening to this can do is that I say, you know, you've got to become a rock in the storm. And this has been so true. The last few years, we've gone through so much turmoil. We're, we're in lockdown, then we're not in lockdown. And then there's political upheaval, economic upheaval. We don't know what's going on. The cost of living's going through the roof. And so there's so much change going on around us that it can be easy to feel like a ball in a pinball machine. So I say to people, come on back to your mindset and let's get to a place where you have your true north compass. You know who you are, you know what you stand for, and therefore you know which direction you're going to head in every day, no matter what's happening around you. And the simplest way to do this is to write down on a piece of paper, what are your top three values? And values, uh, or if you, if you like principles, if people prefer that term, these are the values that you would be so proud to live your life by that when you have a really difficult decision, you come back to your values and you think, okay, I care about maybe a value would be I put my family first always. So when you're making a decision, that would be some that would be different to somebody who says, you know, I put my uh, my uh, my career first, or I put my reputation first, or I put my honesty first, or I put my health first. What are the values for you that are absolutely critical that you will put first when you're making a big decision? Now, there was a great experiment on this done by David Cresswell and David Sherman back in uh, Germany in around 2015. They did a series of experiments using the Trier Social Stress Test, where they found in one particular one that if they got people to write down their values and and spend 15 minutes just associating themselves with their values before they went into a very stressful experience, then they could come out of that experience feeling completely fine compared to other people who went in who hadn't thought about their values, who were going in there and being demolished. And the reason being, the people who wrote their values had internal validation before the stressful experience. Whereas people who are not focusing on their values, they're going in trying to get external validation, trying to please the other people, which is what people do in communication all the time. And this is where so many people get it wrong. They go in, they're trying to uh, make the, the employer want to hire them, or they make the audience try and like them, or they're trying to get their team uh, to, to agree and go along with an idea. And it's all looking for external validation. And suddenly you're the ball in the pinball machine. So I, I bring people back to this and say, before you go on stage, before you do a pitch, before you go to meet your team, you're going to really focus in on your validation, your internal validation from your mindset, knowing if I live these values for the rest of this day, no matter what else happens, I will feel proud of myself when I put my head down and that's what I can control. And so once you've done that piece, you're rock solid in who you are. Then you can start to add on pieces like body language and storytelling and question handling techniques and all those things that goes the next stage out. And then further to that, thinking about those long-term goals you want to achieve. You know, Richard, I'd, I'd like to unpack this with you a little bit because, you know, I'm very much in terms of what my wife and I coach around is living a values-driven life, a values-based mm -hmm. life. And to your point, it becomes so much easier to make decisions when you understand what your values are, because then you're just going, no, that doesn't fit in the 
in line with my values. And these aren't moral values. This is, these aren't societal morals. These are values that are important to me and my significant other. And together we live different values perhaps, but we align in many cases. So a little bit long-winded, but I wanna get back to, here's some of the challenges and how do you overcome the challenges? I mean, I have literally talked to people many times who don't know their values and or, uh, after they do the work, they realize that they're living someone else's values, generally parents or family of some yeah. sort. So they're misaligned with their values. They think their values are this thing, but it's actually, no, that's 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 how I was raised. That was my mom and dad's values. And while I respect that, I'm not living those values. So do you have an exercise or do you have an explanation that people can relate to and that they say to you, okay, Richard, I, I get what you're saying, but I'm not really clear on what's this values thing you're talking about. Yeah, it's a great question because you're so right that some people, I say to them, let's work out your values. And they say, I've never tried to do that in my life. I'm not sure. Or, that, or again, like you said, that they, they have values put upon them by society or by their parents or people they've seen on Instagram or you know, it could be all sorts of places. So one way that you can do it, it's a really great way to elicit the values is to get people to not write down their values, but write down what do they want. And I, and I found this by accident because uh, about um, maybe it's five years ago, I was doing an experiment on this with a group of about 12 people in a workshop. And I said, I'd like them to write down their values. And they were a really young group and they didn't really understand what I meant. And so instead of writing down values, they wrote down what they want. And so I went to the first person. I said, could you share? I'd given them like 10 minutes to work on it. I said, could you share your values? And this guy said, uh, my number one value in life is money. I said to him, ah, okay, well, money is actually something that you want. It's not really a value. Can you tell me the story about why it is that you want money, and then I can tell you what your value is. And he said, yeah, well, we, you know, when I was younger, we didn't have any money. He said that he, he grew up completely broke. When he came home from school, he didn't know where he was going to sleep at night, and the only meal he was guaranteed in the day was uh, the meal that he had at lunch at lunchtime at school. And so now that he was older, he was in a position of having, uh, he was married, he had a child, and he said he wanted to make absolutely certain that his family always had a roof over their head and make absolutely certain they always had three meals per day. And I said to him, based on that, the story is telling me that your value is probably something like security. That's what the money is going to give you, is that sense of fulfilling that value. And he looked at me like I lifted the weight of the world off his shoulders, and he said, you're so right. That is that's it. And people around him were saying, that's how you live your life. That's how you're making your decisions. It's always about like safety, security, how are you going to do something in that way? And what was fascinating for me in that room, this is how I really learned. It's a, You've got to ask people, what do they want? And then find out the story of why they want it. Because there was a lady in that room who put her hand up and she said, I don't understand what you just did because I wrote down money, but my life is completely different to his. So what does that mean for me? And I said, okay, Money is what you want. Tell me the story of why that is that you want it. And so she said, well, you know, I've always had money. I, you know, I come from a middle-class background. We've always had a comfortable amount of money. But she said, the thing is for me, when I go to a restaurant, I never want to look at the prices. I just want to be able to order whatever I feel like having. And she said that she would always keep her passport in her handbag so that if she felt like it on a Friday afternoon, she could just go straight to the airport, buy a ticket to go wherever she wanted to go on the weekend, 
to be with whoever she wanted to be with, doing whatever she wanted to do. And that's what money was about for her. And I said, okay, well, I think it sounds like money is giving you a sense of freedom. And she said, that's it. That's my value. That's who I, that's what I want to do. And everyone looked at her and said, that's exactly, you never commit to anything. You always want a sense of freedom. And so that was one of her key values. So they both wanted the same thing, but they had a very different story. And so if people get a blocker on trying to figure out what their values might be, then I go down that path of saying, what is it that you really want? What are the, your, your strongest desires? Let's figure out the story of why you want it. And there'll be a value attached to it. And the value is the thing that you're looking for, which is where, you know, for some, some people, they might think, I want a million dollars. And they get a million dollars and they don't feel happy. And they think, well, why is that? I sort of thought that that was what I wanted, but they didn't fulfill their value on the path to getting there. Because maybe one of their values is integrity. And they had linked integrity and wealth and you know, high wealth individuals maybe having high integrity, but they did it in a way that broke their integrity. And then suddenly they think, ah, oh, it doesn't feel like I thought it would feel. So uh, that's a great way of just picking apart what they want, the story, and then finding the value. I love it. You know, and many years ago, and we've been really coaching around values and living a values-driven life and really discovering how easy it is to get off track. So to your point, you know, there's some fundamental learning and understanding that we gain, you know, uh, your point, money. Well, it's interesting that money translates usually to financial health or financial certainty or security or financial freedom. If that's one of your your values, you live into that value. What's interesting about this is what I've learned. And if you're okay having this conversation, I think it's important to listeners to give them some tools to work with, and then we'll carry on. But, you know, there is a fundamental challenge that I see. And I say, okay, list your top five values. People list their top five values, but what is missing for them is, you know, they want financial certainty of some sort or financial security. And then I say, list your top five values and it's okay. Well, family, there's nothing more important than family, right? You got to have family. You know, my, my uh, church is really, really important. My community, that's really, really important to me. So they go down their list of values and the word finance or money isn't even in their top five values yet. They say that is exactly what they're missing or that's where they see the gap. So it is interesting to kind of point out to people sometimes is that you say that's what you want. You want that financial certainty, that financial security. You haven't even listed it as one of your top three, top five values. And so it's no surprise that you're not living into that and making decisions based on that. Because once you realize and once you own it, because a lot of people feel guilty, they're, they feel guilty when they put money as their highest values. You know, that just isn't the right thing to do. And they have a story around it, you know, whatever their upbringing is. So I, I digress a little bit. Yeah. But one of the, I'll share with you one of the tools that I learned, like I say, 20 plus years ago when I was, uh, when we were working with a guy by the name of Dr. John Martini. I don't know if you've crossed him, but, yes. you know, John really does a great job. He says, you want to know what your values are? It's really simple. You are always living your values, whether the right values or the, your truest values or not. So look at where you spend your money. Where do you spend your time? What are you surrounded by? And it will start to identify exactly what your values are. 
And it's so true is that people will go, I don't know what my values are. Okay, well, look at what you're surrounded by. What are your surroundings? What are you spending your money on? What do you spend your time doing? What do you spend your time talking about? Those will ultimately be your first indicator to what your highest values are or the highest values you're living. And then you can start to put in the correction if you realize that, holy cow, that is not even being true to myself, which is about the integrity side of the conversation. So I, I just love these conversations because... You know, it's a body of work that you're doing, you know, and have been doing for many years, yet it is such a, it still seems so, uh, I guess, rare or vague to people to understand that living a values-based life, operating a values-based company, having a values-based culture within your company, these are all things that improve communication back to where we started the conversation around communication and when you even are hiring people it's like do you align with our values when you start to realize cool. that like attracts like the clearer you are on your values the yeah. more likely you are to attract people that align with those values and have great friends so I guess a yeah, long well, just comment. To, uh, to dive into that, I've got a thought to, to add there, which is I've done a lot of work the last few years on companies where they have announced the, the values of the company. Like there's, there's this big announcement of, hey, everyone, these are our new values that we're going to be living by. And they give people sweatshirts and they give people coffee mugs with the values on and they put them up in the, they, they sort of chip them into the marble in the foyer of the reception area or so on. They say, these are our values. We want to live by these values. And then people go about their day and they don't change anything. And they, they occasionally will come to me and say, look, can you work with our leadership team to actually own these values so that we, we're doing something about it? And so what I do with them is to create bridges in values. Because the thing is, as you said there, you've got, you know, people have values, but company ha companies have values. And they may not be the same, but there needs to be some kind of alignment. So we'll often work on with uh, teams. You can do this with hundreds of people at a time. When there's been a new values launch, I'll sort of step in and say to them, okay, let's work out individual values. So I do a whole workshop around that piece. Then I say to them, you know, these values that have just been announced that uh, your, your company is supposed to be living out and they look at them and go, yeah. I say, um, can you remember what they are? Oh, no. I say to them, okay, well, this is what those values are. This is what they're supposed to mean. Now I'd like you to try and find a bridge I want you to look at your personal values and see how there is a connection. Where is there alignment with just one of these values where you can suddenly see that you are able to live your values every day by living out that key company value. And they suddenly start to see, oh, hang on a second, there is a connection. And so it can just take them off like rocket fuel in the right direction. And to go back to like a simple really example on this is to go back to your example where you said, you know, the person who says they want financial security, but their top values would be, family and church, say, for example, in that situation. And so what I would say to someone in that situation is, uh, okay, well, you know, family's number one. What kind of role model do you want to be for your family? Well, I want, I want to show them they can do anything that they want to do. And I want to, I want to be a great provider for them. Okay, so let's see if we can just bridge that to the finances. So you're saying the finances allows you to be the version of the person in the family that you want to be. Oh, oh yeah. Hang on a second. So finances equals doing the good thing in my family. I get it. So providing I'm putting my family first and not throwing them to the curb in earning money, that actually earning finances allows me to be a provider. It allows me to be someone who shows them you can achieve your goals. And same thing in the church. You can say, well, sorry, are you showing? 
showing up at church and then just asking people to give to you or are you giving to the church and giving to the community? Are you sort of showing up as a pillar of the community who's, who's providing service? The more service you provide, the more value you offer, the more financially you're going to be rewarded for that. And you need to be okay with that in order to be a pillar of the community who gives greater service. Ah, and then they're bridging it and they suddenly create these bridges. And when I do this in a room of people where there's like you know several hundred people who have their own individual values and you get them to create bridges to the company's values, they suddenly look at each other like, I can't wait to get to work on Monday because I get to live out my values. This is fantastic. And it just, it sometimes just takes that moment of creating the bridge. It's like a new neural pathway where they go, this is what I want. That's what the company wants. And I now know how to serve it in a way that is meaningful for me. It gives them purpose in what they're doing day to day. So it can be a really nice sort of light bulb moment for them. I love that thought process and, you know, bridging values. You know, there's a there's a fundamental around it all, right? Which is when you get clear on your battle values, there are decisions you're going to have to make. So there is a, you know, it, back to your point in terms of aligning with the values of a company, the values of the company may be really out of whack for you in terms of how they sell, for example. You know, is it an integrity-based sale or are they getting the sale at all costs? You know, you can, you know, yeah. walk the line of gray and, you know, it's not black or white, it's a little gray. You know, can you actually get people over the edge by just telling a little bit of it a story that maybe exaggerates what we do? Now, some people can pull that off and they can go, no, I'll, I'll compromise that. I'm good with that. You know, whatever, whatever it takes, you know, I'm getting a great commission check. Others have to draw a line because they can't live with that. They go, no, I cannot do this anymore or I can't do that. So those are mm. really the fundamentals of understanding, I think, values is that I love what you say. Can you bridge it? And there might be a time where you can't bridge it and you're going to have to make yeah. a tough decision, perhaps. When you're living your values, you know, when I think about this, Richard, you know, one of the we talk about in the values based life is the definition of integrity. And I come back to it often because, you know, somebody, you know, I say to somebody, you know, what's one of your highest values or what's your top three values? And ultimately somebody says integrity, you know, and I go, okay, well, what does integrity mean to you? And generally integrity in most people's definition or many people's definition, it's about telling the truth. And I go, okay, well, tell me more about that. And well, not lying, but then you ultimately get to the question of, okay, telling the truth to who? And it always um. comes back to understanding that I can't really be out of integrity with you. You can't be out of integrity with me. I can only ever be out of integrity with myself. So if I, you know, if integrity is about lying, it's about lying to myself. It's about knowing that I'm, you know, I use the definition of integrity is who you are when nobody's looking. Not my definition, but that's one that I use. <laughs> yeah. You know? Because ultimately, I can lie to you, I can stretch the truth, I can be dishonest, but is that out of integrity? If one of my highest values is just getting the sale at all costs, no, I'm not out of integrity, I'm getting the sale. That's my highest value, is making money, getting that sale. But if you're saying, no, I want to get the sale, but I want to do it in a way that is in alignment with my client's outcome, but I lie about it to get the sale, then I'm out of integrity. Does that make sense? Am I? Yeah. Yeah, it really does. And I think, I think that, you know, integrity is a great conversation to have, which is, you know, I would say that one of my definitions behind it would be living in complete alignment with 
who you are is, you know, really who you, who you say you are is how you act day to day. And that, that can be a full sense of uh, integrity. And um, this is a conversation I sometimes uh, have with people around that piece that it's so important for your reputation. I think it was Warren Buffett who said it can take decades to build a reputation and five minutes to lose it. But it's actually, you know, the reputation gets lost based on you it's doing something, people find out that you've done something that is out of alignment with everything that you say that you are and say that you do. And so uh, this is a piece where I'm able to talk about this because I'm British, so I have enough distance from this. But it's I have this conversation with people sometimes about American politics. So I'm looking at this as an outsider. I'm fairly neutral politically, so I'll just put that up to begin with. But I talk about this where uh, there was a situation in the uh, in the election, I think it was the 2016 election, where um, at Donald Trump, there was this uh, Hollywood access tape of him talking about grabbing women. And people said, oh, that's it. The, the election's over for him. But actually, he went up in the polls and, and he you know, ultimately went, went on, on to win. And a lot of people scratched their heads saying, well, how is that even possible? You know, if, if Barack Obama had had a tape coming out about him doing that, he would have been finished. And the conversation I, I had around it was to say, but you've got to understand how, who are they positioning themselves to be? And, you know, Donald Trump is the kind of person who said, let's build a wall. Let's lock her up. Let's smash and grab. Let's do things. Let's make us first again. Like what he was, what he was found out doing on the Hollywood access tape is absolutely in alignment with the kind of person people thought he was anyway. So it's not out of integrity with who he is saying that he's, he is or who he's trying to portray himself to be. And so that's where you've got to think about, you know, who do I want people to see me as, but actually who am I really genuinely? And, and are those two things in alignment? Because if they're not, you're going to be in trouble. So you've got to make sure that who you, who you are in, in your heart, that's what you're going to live out. And you're going to live out those values day to day, even when nobody's watching. So I love this conversation and I want to link it back to the communication piece because we spend time talking about values and understanding what your values are, getting clear on what a values-based or living a values-based life is really all about. But I'm sure that you see that once you understand those values, it changes your communication. And I'm saying it only because that's what I believe. But, you know, in, in your work with, you know, thousands of people in, in the corporate world and or one-on-one, -on -one, how do you see it? Do you see it that way and that once you're aligned with your values, it changes the way you communicate. What's your what's your kind of philosophy on that? Yeah, I, I think that um, what I've noticed from coaching, you know, my team now we've coached over 120,000 people, and we've coached them all the way around the world. And what I've noticed is that if I can get someone to the very truth of who they are, and then I'm teaching them things around body language and tone of voice and storytelling, it's building on a really solid foundation. Whereas, you know, sometimes where in the past I was, I was, you know, many years back asked to come in and do a quick fix of working on a manager who had a speech at a conference the next day, I can get them to stand in the right position and gesture in the right way and have the right words, but it might feel like it's just not coming from their core. And so it can feel like there's a little bit of sort of glass between them and the audience. Like this, this, the connection is just not quite happening. Whereas if you can get them to come absolutely from their truth and then speak from there, then you're in a much better place. It's like, you know, it's, it's suddenly you can put the, the walls and the roof on because the foundation has been built in a much stronger way. Now, now I will go back to one piece, which is key. Because some people listening might think, okay, all I've got to do then is just be myself and then that's that. Actually, no. You've got to still do the work on your physicality and on your storytelling methods because 
sometimes, you know, when people say, it's okay, just go into that job interview, go into that speech, just be yourself. It's terrible advice because people have got these habits they've built up through their lives, which are armor they've built up, habits that are protection, if you like, for uh, you know difficult situations they've been through in the past. And so if you say just be yourself, what they do is they then present all of those bad habits to people. So even though they're coming from integrity, they're saying things that are true, it doesn't mean they necessarily make a great impact. So you know from that point, you then do need to know the, the rules of the game. So I talk about it sometimes in comparison to tennis, where I say, you know, if you want to be a great tennis player, you don't just walk on the tennis court with integrity, with honesty, you, you just go and be yourself because you'll never hit the ball over the net. You need to understand forehand, backhand, serve and volley to win the game of tennis. And the same goes in communication. Once you've got that sense of, I know who I am, I know what my values are, I'm coming from that sense of truth, then you can add on uh, these elements of uh, working around your, your physicality and your storytelling methods to engage the audience and how you ask questions of the audience. So it's not coming from a place of sort of uh, tricks or manipulation. It's coming from a place of truth. And then suddenly when people see that, this is where you get this uh, description of uh, a speaker being really charismatic because their body language, their tone of voice, their words, and their mindset are all heading in one direction. And you can see every part of them is flowing together and you think, wow, that's that's charismatic. And so you've got to make sure that you're working on all of those pieces. And often the piece, the, the biggest piece of work to do is to work out what bad habits you're displaying and take those away so you come back to the truth of, of your personality. Where this, this is where my first book I wrote was You Were Born to Speak. And what I meant in there is we did this study, this piece of research that showed that you will get a much greater impact on an audience where they'll be more convinced by you. They think you're more knowledgeable. They think that you are a better leader if you strip away habits and come back to how you were naturally born to stand up the way you're naturally born to use your arms, the way you're naturally born to vary your voice and doing all those things that you would have done maybe as a child that got beaten out of you through difficult situations in high school and difficult situations in your early career. And to get into the point where you get these, you get leaders sometimes who just hunch over a podium and, you know, life's been knocked out of them and they say, look, everything's great, everybody. Um, I'm really inspired to be here and it's uh, it's an exciting time for us. And you think, come on, tell your face that it's exciting. If you want them to believe it, like we've got to get away from this stuff that's holding you back, strip that armor off and get back to full expression because otherwise it's just not going to work. There's so many really cool little tips in what you just shared. And uh, let me just share a quick story here. And and I love this topic, so I'm probably uh, doing being a bad uh, host because I, I want to share a couple of my own stories that I just, but it aligns with this. And I want kind of validation that, you know, that how I see it is similar. I don't know, but I want to just share. So there's a client, I'll call it friend who's 58 years old, been in the in, an industry for 40 years. He has got a, just a, an amazing reputation as an in the trenches kind of guy, been on the tools. He was a general manager, knows how to run the core group, this, run his team, very data driven. He's just one of those guys. So he gets out of, like he shuts it down. He goes, no, I'm going to retire. I'm going to just shut it down. But he comes across an opportunity that is in the industry and it's really cutting edge in terms of the, I don't want to call it technology, but just in the product that he came across, he's got distribution for that particular product. And I'm working with him and I'm listening to him. And to your point, it's interesting habits, but for almost 40 years, call it, he's been this guy. 
Now he's going to a trade show and he's got to meet people. He's trying to pitch, if you will, sell this new product concept. And we spent a lot of time around a fundamental conversation is, and I gave him the exercise. I said, is, is there people in the industry that you admire that is kind of now you're wearing that same suit that they're wearing? And he goes, yeah. And I go, so do you understand that for 40 years, you've been this guy, your reputation is this, your peers are this, they know you as this, these are the conversations you're having. And I said, now you have to step into it and go, see that guy over there that you've admired for all those years, who's the pointy end of the spear? I said, well, you're now the pointy end of the spear. So you've got to picture how you're going to show up because what got you to where you are isn't going to get to, to where you want to go. All these little cliches, right? Which is to say yeah. that, you know, it's not about the goal, it's who you need to become to achieve the goal. So if we just yeah. use that, I said, you've got to picture yourself who is that guy that's going to change an industry? Who is that guy that's going to bring this innovation to light in an industry that's old and antiquated and, you know, a good old boys club? How do you need to show up? And, you know, as we work um, through these things, Richard, you know, uh, the other tip I gave him and I worked with him on this is, you know, he wants to tell the whole story in one big, you know, conversation. So he goes on to maybe allow too much. But my point is this. In your communication, when you're working with your clients, I've come to believe and, and proven to myself as a speaker, that you got to connect your brain to your tongue. And it's Man. all to say that we have these ideas, we have this way that we're going to communicate, we're going to say this, and we're going to say it that way. And it really sounds good in your head. But if you don't say it out loud, like if you don't literally don't say it out loud, you don't have to act it out. You don't have to stand in front of a mirror, but you have to literally say it out loud to connect your brain to your tongue. So bit of a story. How do you see that thought process that I just shared? How does it align with yeah, you? There's a, there's a couple of pieces I'd love to dive into uh, on that piece. So, so firstly, connecting your brain to your tongue. Uh, an analogy that I like to give people if they are going to do a talk is to say, I want you to think of yourself as a surfer on the ocean. So if you're going to learn how to surf, what do you do? Well, firstly, the first lesson always happens on the beach. They're not going to take you out onto the waves and then say, okay, pop up on the board because you're going to drown. So what do they do? Either you're on the beach and you pop up on the board and then they say, get down again and again, pop up on the board. And you learn to do that thing over and over and over again. In fact, I learned how to uh, do water skiing very recently on my, my most recent family holiday. And I started to learn on the beach. And the guy was like saying, hold on to this. And now I'm going to pull you. And then you're going to stick your butt out. And you're going to stretch your arms out and keep them straight. And we're practicing on the beach. I'm getting to the point where the muscle memory is there, where I'm like, okay, I'm good. I've, I've got this. I am ready to go. Like my brain is now connecting with my body the same as ways the speech maker needs to connect their brain to their tongue. And so, you know, I've been doing this 23 years. I get booked. Uh, I mean, my team gets booked now about 2,000 times a year. I do maybe 150 of those bookings. And every time before I start a talk, even if I've done the same talk twice in one day, which happens occasionally, every time I connect my brain with my tongue before I start, where I, I, I think, okay, what's the first 30 seconds at a minimum that I, I'm going to be saying so that I can just get to that rhythm where it's muscle memory. So when I start, my brain thinks, oh, this is famili familiar. I know which direction I'm heading in now. 
and then the rest of it can become much more comfortable. The same as it's the same as with water skiing that I learned to do on this recent holiday, where all he was teaching me really is the first 30 seconds of, okay, the boat's going to start to take off. You've got to keep your arms here. You've got to stick your butt out. And the first 30 seconds is basically the boat goes and you've got to stand up. And the rest of it is kind of, you know, riding the waves, riding, riding the water. The same goes with what I teach people for, for speech making is you've got to get to the place where that first 30 seconds, you're going to crush it. You've got muscle memory. Your brain is going to connect and there's going to be no issues there. And from that point forward, you're riding the ocean. You've got to be able to make sure that your communication isn't something that's fixed or forced. So I learned this the hard way as an actor. I studied acting for three years in London and I went to this amazing acting school where we would train for about 60 hours a week. So, you know, my friends were off at university doing like five hours worth of lectures a week and then the rest of the time they're just drinking. Uh, whereas I was doing 60 hours a week of learning how to uh, how to communicate. And I learned the hard way that like for, for early on, I would I'd study a play, I'd learn on my lines and I would decide how I was going to say a line I decide like what gesture I would put with it, what facial expression I'd put with it, and it was fixed. And I would get in and do the scene. And what I was doing had no connection with what the other people on stage were doing. Like somebody who I thought was going to laugh came in crying and sort of knelt before me. And I thought, okay, well, I'm just going to pretend that th that didn't happen and deliver what I'd practiced. And it just didn't work. And, and the acting teacher would say to me, what are you doing? And I'd say, well, that's how I thought I'd deliver the line. They'd say, but you've got to react to what's happening in front of you. And that's that's served me really well to come back to the analogy of being a speaker, being a communicator in any situation, one-to-one, one-to-a-few, or one-to-many. You've got to react to what is there, just like a surfer on the ocean. If you go out in the ocean still, well, then you're on a still ocean. You can't suddenly pretend that you're riding the waves if the waves aren't there. If it's a really choppy ocean, you can't just sort of sit comfortably on your board and pretend that there's no waves. You've got to react to the situation. So the same goes as a communicator. You've got to be ready to flex yourself to what's really live happening uh, around you. Then coming back to your earlier point, which I really uh, love and very much resonate with, where you said, you know, it's who you become on the journey towards a goal that really matters. Uh, I teach this whole piece around it, and it's the piece that I'm actually proudest of, of anything that I've created in my intellectual property. Uh, it's gone into my, my recent book, Lift Your Impact, which is around archetypes. So archetypes, they've been talked about for many years. Uh, Carl Jung really popularized them in the early 1900s. And lots of people have talked about different versions of archetypes. Some systems have like four archetypes. I've seen one with as many as 35 and there's anything in between there. And archetypes are a type of behavior that you can see showing up in civilizations and in storytelling across thousands of years. And these are modes of being for different human beings. Now, the reason that I raise it is that I've noticed, so coming back to your, your friend who is 58 years old and he's been a certain way for many years and then needs to shift to be a different way. I talk to people about saying, once you've set your goals and you say, this is where I really want to, to go to, this is where I want to be, the journey from where you are to where you want to be isn't how, it's who. It's not about how am I going to do it because you're not going to do it because like you, you've got you to where you are right now. You have to think, who do I need to become to do that? And what path, what journey am I going on? And, and all great storytelling does this. They take someone who is so obviously not supposed to be able to achieve the goal and the person transforms. And by the end, maybe they achieve the goal and maybe they don't. But the point is the transformation. So I created these six archetypes, which are opposed to each other, where there's a journey between them. 
And the, the archetypes, just briefly to mention, are the shield, uh, the sovereign, showtime, sage, uh, servant, and sprite. So it's like six different modes of being. And they all of them, they have one of the modes, one of the archetypes that is uh, directly opposed to where they are. And so let's say that you've got someone who is sprite mode, where, you know, they've been just, uh, they got to where they are by being sort of uh, fun and carefree and just everything's loose and easy. And they just, they, they kind of want to get to the next level and they just don't know how to get there. Well, the opposite archetype is the sovereign. And the sovereign is the person who is focused, who makes plans, who makes decisions, and who is listened to by an audience uh, of people who will gather around them and take leadership instructions. To go from the sprite across to being the sovereign, or from going from the sovereign across to being the sprite, that's a big journey to make. And it's tapping into that sense of, let me figure out what my full potential is. Everyone who is being the sprite or being the sovereign does it in their own different way. It's not about becoming someone else, but it's be about becoming more of who you are. And if you're willing to take that journey from your current mode, your current archetype across to one that is different to you, it suddenly exponentially expands what you're capable of doing. It shows you more of who you are, shows you more of your potential. And whether you hit the goal or not, you are suddenly capable of doing much more in many different situations. So I love showing people that piece so they can say, oh, hang on a second. Basically, I've been stuck in a rut thinking that my current habits are me. And if I put those habits down, I think, oh, those aren't me. Those are just habits. Now I can become more of myself. A couple things, one of which I want to just shine a light on. You know, you said it so well, you know, on your journey to where you want to go. It's not how it's who. And so many people get stuck in the how. And sometimes it is going through the hows that you develop the who's. In order to pull off a how, you have to show up differently. But if you approach mm. it right from the start of not how, but who, it really changes how you embrace the changes that need to be made, that you need to look at. And you know, to those individuals that are stuck in a rut, it's the understanding of no, this is not the way I am. This isn't just the way I am, which is resonates with me as a young man. I used to use that statement. It's just the way I am. Well, no, it's not just yeah. the way you are. It's the way you're choosing to be. Choose differently. Take a look at what's going yeah. on and uh, and start to unpack those habits that we have so uh, comfortably hung on to because it is comfortable. But in other words, you can't get to where you want to go if you're being the same person that you are today. Now, I, I don't need to go down that path, but I want to know a little bit about your book in terms of Lift Your Impact. What does that title mean or what is the book kind of about, uh, Richard? Yeah, so I, I wrote this book in response to the, the biggest requests that have come up from clients for, from the last three years. So uh, previous to that, a couple of, so about five years ago now, I had written a book where I thought, that's it. I've put down everything I need to share with people. That's everything that I could possibly think of sharing around communication. That's it. That's giving them what they need. And then we went into this pandemic and it, and it really shifted the needs from people. Uh, and I, we have got clients all the way around the world, across Europe, the Middle East, Asia, America, Africa, Australia, everywhere. And when the pandemic hit, suddenly I realized that the requests we were getting from our clients had shifted. And so there was three major challenges we noticed that people were facing. So firstly, the level of stress that people were feeling went upwards. So people were in a place where suddenly 
There was economic uncertainty. They didn't know if their job was going to be safe. If their job was safe, then maybe the number of people in their business had been reduced. The amount of opportunities in their industry were reduced. And then the amount that they were supposed to achieve had gone up. So they're having to work harder, maybe for less reward and less certainty. And also, we've got this challenge around stress where we used to have two or maybe a maximum of three meetings per day because you couldn't drive to more than those locations in a day. Now that we've got Teams meetings, you could have 17 meetings in a day. And then you still are supposed to answer 300 emails and then update your LinkedIn profile or whatever else it is that you're doing. So people are suddenly feeling very much more stressed. Secondly, not only that, people were finding that uh, they're coming to us saying we've got suddenly very surface level communication. So, you know, people lost their practice of communication for, for several months, depending on which country people are living in, they may have been locked down in their homes, unable to go and hug their family. And so we, we had this sort of disconnect from being able to stay connected with others. Then when people went into the, back into the workplace, they found that they just didn't have the depth of relationship they used to have with people, where they might see them every day at the coffee break or every day going for like a drink after work. So suddenly there's this surface level interaction and thirdly, people doing this sort of quiet quitting, the mass resignation that happened during that time, are people saying, I don't know what the point of this company is. I don't know what the point of work is anymore. I don't know why I'm doing this. And maybe you know, a lot of them coming in your direction, Patrick, of saying, I need to have a values-based life because I don't know what I'm doing this for anymore. And so those three major areas I wanted to approach in this book to say, firstly, making sure that people have got a rock solid mindset so they can be the best version of themselves in the moments that really matter in life. So, so doing that first. Then secondly, thinking, how can you have much deeper connections with people so that for your relationships at work and uh, at home and with anybody who you, you interact with, you can have a deep connection, something that's much more meaningful. So your influence suddenly goes up. You're the best version of you and you can influence outwards from there. And then lastly, thinking, well, what is your purpose? What is your long-term legacy that you want to build for yourself? So it's almost like these three circles going outwards of my mindset, my influence, and then my future. How do I transform those aspects so that I live a meaningful life and I can truly lift my impact? And so I put it in this book and I made it, my, my editor didn't know I was going to do this, but I basically made it into a workbook so that there's, there's places for people to write on every other page. They can make it their own version. They can go through the activities and truly change. I didn't want anyone to read this and be a passive reader and go, huh, okay, that's sort of interesting. Now I'm going to read another book. I thought, no, 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 I'm going to tell them, get your pen out and make this your book and make this your, your uh, transformation activity. So I was really pleased with how it turned out. Now is your, I, I love it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get your book. Is your book available on Audible yet? It is, yeah. So I, I insisted, actually. I've got a hardback, audiobook, and ebook. Did you read the book on Audible? I or? did. I, wow. I did narrate you. it, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because my, with my first book and my second book, uh, both of them I've narrated, but both times I've had to audition to do it ah. because the studio didn't believe that a non-full-time professional actor could do the narration for their audiobook because it's, it's really hard. I mean, I don't know if you've ever done it, but it's, it's like it's a real skill to be able to narrate an audiobook. And keep it interesting. I'm going to give listeners a tip, and I don't know if you know this tip. You probably do, given your background. But if your book is a workbook kind of book, and whether it is or isn't is irrelevant, but really, but if it is, which you're saying it is, that's awesome. And you have Audible, the thing to do is put in an, a pair of earbuds 
and let somebody read you the book. And it changes the game of how you learn. So when I'm buying books now, I'm literally having the copy in front of me and sometimes it's on my Kindle, sometimes it'll be hardcover, but mostly on my Kindle because I can copy paste, do all those kinds of things and make notes. I love that part of it. But I love listening to it on Audible and having the author or whomever read to me. My retention goes up like it's through the roof in terms of retention and how it lands. So I pass that tip on to listeners. I don't know if you're familiar with that one, but it really is a game changer yeah, yeah. in how you read a book. Because there's a lot of... Yeah, in, I love that. You know, there's a lot of individuals go, I read, you know, 47 books this year. Okay, great. You know, I, I probably was some version of that guy in the past. And I really made a commitment to know, I'm going to unpack this book. If I find it interesting, I'm actually going to give it my time and study, you know, to say, okay, I'm not just reading the words and picking up some highlights. I, I really want to unpack the book. Then I added the audible component to it. And wow, it's like you just go to a new level of literally hearing and understanding the book. And it's... I, I don't know why that is. I, I don't know the psychology behind it. I was given that yeah. tip and it just works. Yeah, I, I came across that tip myself a couple of years ago and I love it too. And I think what I was told is that it engages different aspects of your brain. When you hear something and you can see it, then there's more parts of your brain engaged in the learning process and uh, and you're less likely to have your mind wander because you've got more of your senses involved in the in the process. And the piece that I do as well and it like, you know, people can do it whichever way they want. But I also will set Audible at sort of a different speed. So I set it at either 1.25 or maybe 1.5 speed because then it keeps me locked onto the page. Because I, I used to be, right, I'd like read five pages and then I'd need to go to sleep because my, my mind was wandering. But if I do it just at a slightly higher pace, then I find I have to focus on the page because otherwise I'm going to miss something and and it allows me to, to get really involved in it. And I love that um, full sensory experience of feeling the mood and the tone in which that, that that was supposed to be delivered. So I love it if the if the narrator is actually the author. That makes such a difference because you can feel the emotion they went through in a certain passage of the book. You know, funny, uh, totally kind of off topic, on topic around picking up speed and going to, you know, reading at a 1.25 or listening at a 1.25, 1.5. And you really do train your ear. A friend of mine, an acquaintance, I'll call him a good acquaintance, is blind and he listens to all of his stuff audible. His The speed of which he listens to it at is like, like a six. Like literally, I have listened to his stuff put in his his uh, headset and tried to listen. And I literally cannot understand what the person is saying. <laughs> and that's normal for him. And it really is about the well, sensory development. And it, like, and if you didn't try it, you couldn't believe that somebody could listen to that speed. And for him, it's totally normal. That's what he listens to. That's how he listens to it. And I'm going, wow, talk about training, sensory kind of how your brain evolves and develops. I was really fascinated by it. And, uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm yeah. not, you know, sometimes I go 1.5 and sometimes it depends on the reader. I mean, there are definitely slow talkers that you can go to 1.75 and it almost seems normal yeah. because they talk yeah. slow to begin with. But anyways, we digress. So as we kind of, you know, wind down a little bit, you know, I'd like to just touch on body language, you know, because when we think of a body language, you know, I would incorporate, you know, eye contact, maybe how we shake a hand, uh, how we approach somebody and or face somebody or don't face somebody. What are some of the, you know, what are some kind of subtle 
body language tips that you could share with listeners in this conversation, Richard, that could draw their attention to something? So uh, the, the key rule that I have around body language is very simply that there's no right or wrong body language. All the body language is, it's a language. So it's continuously communicating something. Whether Some people think, oh, you can't read me. But whatever you're doing, your body's doing something. And so you can always read something and you're always transmitting something. And so all you've got to focus on in your body language to really make it work is think, how do I want the person to feel by the end of this interaction? And I'm going to use my words, my, my vocal language and my physical language, my body language to get to that end goal, to get to that end feeling. And so once you do that, you suddenly think, okay, so that means that there's no right or wrong. And the reason I stress that is that, you know, years ago, people used to come up to me saying, is it wrong to put your hands in your pockets? Is it bad to fold your arms? I say to them, well, it depends on the situation. Like, what are you trying to convey? If you're aiming to convey to somebody that you're feeling kind of casual right now and you're not intending to speak uh, for a moment, then putting your hands in your pockets is perfectly valid. Uh, but there was, it, it sort of depends on who you're speaking to. If you've got the older generation were taught at school, it is bad, it is wrong. And therefore, if you put your hands in your pockets, depending on where the person went to school, they might instantly think this person doesn't know what they're doing because they're doing something that I was taught not to do when I was five. So there's certain aspects there. Uh, then when we look at you know body language, you've got to break down that some of it is universal and some of it is cultural. So if you're to do sort of thumbs up, thumbs down, or the okay symbol, it means different things in different parts of the world, which I learned when I was living in India, I was I was walking along this street, sort of on the way up to where my monastery was, and this person was giving me the thumbs up gesture, and so I turned to him and I gave him the thumbs up gesture, and then he did the thumbs up gesture sort of closer towards his mouth, and I did the same thing as if to say, hey buddy, yeah yeah great, so whatever you hope you're having a good day, and then he he came over to me, put his arm around me, and dragged me into an alcohol den. <laughs> uh, where people were drinking something called BAMS, which is, I never figured out what it was, but some sort of seed where you pour boiling hot water on it, it ferments. And it is, it's like drinking um, sort of, you know, straight vodka or something. And you've got an entire bamboo container of this stuff and it's warm. And then, you, you know, but, but his indication was like the fist was like representing the bamboo cup and the thumb popping up was like the straw. And so, uh, and they've got something in India called thumbs up cola, or they did many years back. So that thumbs up represented, uh, do you want to have a drink rather than are you okay? So anyway, those are certain things you need to know about. But then when we look at what's universal, there's certain things, certain principles that are universal that everybody can use in order to enhance their impact, enhance their communication. So one simple thing that I teach people is that, you know, the biggest fear seems to be public speaking, whether you're speaking to one person or speaking to a group. And so there's weird habits and affectations that people have when they stand up. And you've got to think, when you're separating yourself from the tribe, if you're all sitting down, you're all on a, sort of the same eye level and so on, you're, you are one. When you stand up from them, you're separating yourself from the tribe saying, I will lead you for the next 10 minutes or the next two hours. I'm going to lead the tribe. And their instinctive reaction is subconsciously to think, do I see you as the tribe leader or the leader of the pack? Do, do you represent that in some way? And so there's a physicalization that you can have of being the leader of the tribe. And so if you look at what most people do, what most people do is that they stand off to one side. They're leaning off on one hip they might sway from one hip to the other as they get gradually uncomfortable on one side uh, or the other. You often see them sort of slouching back in what I think of as kind of like a too cool for school sort of James Dean sort of position. 
or even standing with their feet very close together or one foot crossed across the other one, in any of those positions, if you were to give the person a quick nudge on their shoulder, they would fall over. They are physically the representation of a pushover. And so I always say to people, however you stand at the front of the room, if someone could touch your shoulder and push you and you would fall down, you are physically a pushover. And therefore, subconsciously, that's how people feel about your message. So when you say in that sort of position, I believe in this product, I need you to finish this project by 2 p.m. on Thursday, they feel, nah, you're a bit of a pushover. I don't believe you. I'm not going to do it by Thursday. Forget it. Whereas if you physicalize standing in a position where gravity works with you, and generally speaking, for most people, this is where you've got your feet around about a shoulder width apart, where you haven't locked your knees, the slightly uh, loose knees, and your weight is equally positioned between left foot, right foot, toes, and heels. You're in a ready position. And this is the position that we learn to stand up in when we're one year old. So when, when you're a one year old, you try and stand. If you put your feet together, you fall over. You're a pushover. If you stand with your weight on one side, you fall over. But eventually you work out. If you stand with your feet shoulder width apart and you're equally balanced in your weight, then suddenly you can stand and you've made that progress towards being an adult. And so if you do this in front of an audience, then suddenly what they see is they know if they gave you a quick tap on your shoulder, you're not going anywhere. And I, I learned this from basketball. My, basketball was my sport when I was younger. And I remember trying to do a free throw where I had my feet together and I was just taking this shot. My coach came over just as I was about to take a free throw. He just pushed me over. I said, what did you do that for? He said, you're a pushover. Like you, you can't stand like that and take a good shot. You need to put your feet shoulder width apart, get ready and have strong foundation and then take the shot. And so you'll see people doing this in golf, in tennis, in basketball, like you name the sport. They are standing feet shoulder width apart, ready for a critical moment in the game. And if you do that in front of a room, then it doesn't matter what your gender or your ages or your background. We proved scientifically that in, that enhances uh, how good a leader people think you are, how convincing you are, how likely they'd be to vote for you in an election. It all goes up because you've physically gone from representing pushover to representing gravitas, where gravity is working efficiently on your body. Mm. I absolutely love that. So thanks for sharing that. Now, when you are doing keynote or when you're working corporations, are you are you are you kind of brought in to talk to sales teams, production teams? Like who where is your kind of sweet spot in terms of those in the corporate world that are looking to bring you in? What are they bringing you in for? So there's probably three major teams who we get brought into. And I should say, like for my team, we do one-to-one -one coaching, one-to-a-few, and one-to-many. And it tends to start with one-to-many, which is what I do. So I'm generally on, on stage uh, or on screen in front of an audience between 100 and several thousand. And uh, the leadership teams would be the first kind of group where leadership teams come together for a conference and they will, they'll be sort of spitballing, brainstorming ideas for the strategy for the year. And generally speaking, I get brought in on the last day of the conference where they suddenly realize they've got these amazing new strategies, but they have no idea how they're going to communicate this to the business and actually do something about it. And so I'll come in and say, okay, you, you've now got the strategy. Let me talk to you about how you're going to communicate this with the business to make sure that next year, when you come back to this conference, genuine, dramatic transformation has happened. So you can then take the business to the next level. So then we'll work with them and embed that so they can do this and they can work on it uh, worldwide if they need to. So there'll be leadership teams, sales teams, of course, they want to generate more sales. I love working with 
with sales teams because when we're working with them on conferences or smaller sessions, their energy is generally off the charts. And so we take them into a place where they can be more effective and more confident and uh, be often better at sort of questioning and listening skills because they're often quite good at talking, but we take them into that sort of space. And the third place that we go, which I really enjoy doing, is talking to people who are technically um, very skilled. So we'll often work with engineering companies, pharmaceutical companies, telecoms, and so on. People who've got a, a particular skill where they need to talk about complex things with non-technical people. And they need to put it in a way that will resonate and make sense because they could talk all day about their technical knowledge and nobody would be any the wiser. So we talk to them about storytelling around it to make sure it's clear, concise, and compelling. We talk to them about their delivery style and their ability to connect with the people they're speaking to. And so we do these sort of rollouts of training where we, we, we train in multiple languages as well so we can give people that one-to-one -one coaching that they might need to make sure that it really happens for them uh, and that it, ha it has a lasting impact for their organization. Well, love it. Absolutely fascinating. I love this topic. I want to say, you know, as we wind down here that I appreciate the time you've given us, but I do want to wind down a little bit. I think uh, it, it would be appropriate now to kind of do a little segment that we, or I call rapid fire, kind of rapid fire questions. You ready for that? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so, yeah, sure. Yeah, we're, gonna, we're just going to warm up really, really quietly here and get you warmed up. Android or iPhone? iPhone. Oh, okay. Not everybody is, by the way, but most are, uh, you know, definitely along that line. Do you have a favorite song, favorite band genre that you listen to in terms of music? I am, uh, I'm a big fan, actually, of Michael Bublé. Uh, who I've been to see many times in concert. My wife bought him, bought me one of his albums. And oddly, she met him at an airport in Frankfurt and had like a long in-depth conversation with him when the flight was delayed. And then I, we went to a concert and he, he, at one point he said, um, Hey, does, uh, this is such a privilege to sing to 25,000 people. Does anyone else want to sing? And I put my hand up and he gave me the microphone. And I sang to his audience one of his songs, which was like a, a great memorable moment. If anyone listening wants to see that, they can go to my LinkedIn profile and they can find me singing with Michael Bublé to 25,000 people. So, uh, yeah, there's a bit of, there's a few memories around that for us. Fantastic. How'd you do? Did you crush it? Uh, I, I I did okay for the first two lines, and then I couldn't remember the words, <laughs> so he had to whisper them to me because uh, I just went blank. Uh, that's hilarious. Good job. Have a favorite movie? Oh, favorite movie. That's a great question. Um, I've got many favorites, uh, but I, I, um, I'm a big James Bond fan, maybe being British. Uh, and so I loved Casino Royale with the first Daniel Craig movie where they just stepped away from how they traditionally done Bond. And I, I loved it so much. So I, I've probably now watched it so many times that I can't watch it anymore. Wow. Good for you. That's kind of cool. Now, is there, uh, aside from your own book, uh, is there a favorite book that you recommend and or gift to people? It depends really on what it is they, they want to achieve. So I think uh, if people are looking for some motivation, then I generally, um, depending on how much of a kick up the bum they're looking for, I sometimes recommend David Goggins uh, with his books, uh, Can't Hurt Me and uh, Never Finished was the more recent one. And he's got really interesting, we talked about audiobooks earlier, the audiobooks are really interesting. He doesn't narrate them, but what he does, he's got a friend narrating them. And at the end of each chapter, that friend interviews him about what happened in the chapter. And so you get more out of the audiobook than you actually get out of the book. So 
Uh, they're fantastic. Yeah, but then they're not. Um, if anyone's easily offended by strong language, they're maybe not for you. But uh, I found them very powerful. Very cool. Your room, your desk, or your car. What do you clean first? Oh, my desk, <laughs> I suppose. So I've got a clean workspace. So because it's where I spend, you know, the majority of my home, my, my time when I'm at home. Uh, you know, the car only gets cleaned when it really needs to clean. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Favorite swear word? Favorite swear word? Uh, what would it be? I very rarely swear. But I, but I think fuck is my favorite one because it's, it's, you know, it's so, uh, it's so useful in different situations. <laughs> like it can mean, it can mean a hundred things. It can mean a hundred things, good, bad, and different. I love it. If there is a God, what do you want to hear him say when you get to the gates? I think I want to hear him say, come on in. Your family is right over here. Beautiful. And finally, Richard, what are you grateful for today? Today, I am really grateful that my two children uh, are healthy and happy in school, uh, which has not always been the case, but right now that's where they are and they are friends with each other. And that means the world to me. Love it. And as always, I am grateful for having had the opportunity to speak with you, to learn about you, to share your story with many, because I think there's a lot of value in it. And I'm always grateful for my family and today i'm particularly grateful for the community uh that the everyday millionaire has that supports the channel and supports the podcast richard it has been an absolute pleasure and thank you so much for joining me today on the everyday millionaire podcast you're welcome thanks for having me ladies and gentlemen thank you for listening if you found value in the podcast, please take the time to rate and review and share with others, share with your friends. As it is my goal to always improve and to provide the highest value for you, the listener, if you have any comments, suggestions, or questions you'd like answered, please email me at ceo at raincanada.com. That's ceo at reincanada.com. I look forward to hearing from you. And until next time, Patrick out.